If we haven't met, my name's Terry Smith. I am the lead pastor here at the Life Church. What's, what's the name of this place? <laughs> I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. We're in trouble if I'm going to have trouble pronouncing the name of the church. And um, I'm going to teach a little while uh, today about uh, why we need to do more than believe. Or, or at least, what does it really mean to believe? And so, you know, today's the second uh, installment in this series about discipleship being the adventure of a lifetime. I'm excited to be able to share with you guys today. So you're probably aware that there were several assassination and coup attempts against Adolf Hitler while he was leading Nazi Germany. The most famous was probably the Valkyrie plot where the German officer Stauffenberg secreted a bomb into a meeting with Hitler and exploded it. Somehow, though several people were killed, Hitler, to the loss of the entire world, uh, survived unscathed. Tom Cruise made the Valkyrie plot famous recently in a movie called Valkyrie in which he played Stauffenberg. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with Hitler and you're familiar with Tom Cruise, but you're probably not familiar with, or at least as familiar with, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a young German pastor, theologian, and author who was a spiritual and intellectual force behind this attempt to remove Hitler from power just a few days before. Uh, and and he, so he, he wanted to um, remove Hitler from power by any means necessary. And for his efforts, he was arrested, imprisoned, and executed just a few days before Germany accepted its defeat in the Second World War. Bonhoeffer is actually best known in Christian circles for his writings, not for the Valkyrie plot. His writings of Live Beyond Him become widely recognized as some of the greatest writings in Christian history, particularly his spiritual classics, The Cost of Discipleship and Life Together, which are both still very popular and fervently studied today. I want to focus just in an introductory way today about on several things that Bonhoeffer wrote in The Cost of Discipleship that offer some of his thinking and that provides a backdrop uh, in, for his attempt to follow Jesus whatever the cost. So when he begins writing in The Cost of Discipleship, he says a number of things, but part of what he, he is doing is he's offering a crit critique on his Lutheran brothers and sisters, Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor, in Germany at the time that Hitler was rising to power. And Bonhoeffer offers his very strong feelings that Lutherans had gotten away from the teachings of Martin Luther, who in the Reformation protested against a religious system who believed that you weren't saved by faith through grace alone. And, 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 and Martin Luther, of course, in the Reformation rediscovered this great uh, and true scriptural uh, fact that we are saved uh, uh, by faith through grace alone. But Bonhoeffer now, several hundred years after the Reformation, is saying that, that, that the Lutherans had misunderstood what Luther meant by that, particularly the idea that all you needed to do was believe and then, you know, live however you might want to. 
And Luther says that it's this mentality that in Germany, which was largely Lutheran, that that there was created an environment where somebody like Hitler could actually rise to power. So here's part of what Bonhoeffer writes. He, he, he probably wrote this, I don't remember exactly, I'm thinking in the 19, well it would have been probably mid-1930s. Lutheran pastor writing to his Lutheran brothers and sisters in Germany, 1930. It is a fatal misunderstanding of Luther's action to suppose that his rediscovery of the gospel of pure grace offered a general dispensation from obedience to the command of Jesus. On the contrary, for Luther, the Christian's worldly calling registers the final radical protest against the world. The grace he had received, Luther, says Bonhoeffer, was costly grace. And it was costly for, so far from dispensing him from good works, it meant that he must take the call to discipleship more seriously than ever before. The only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. In other words, Bonhoeffer says, Luther didn't intend for us just to confess our faith, say I'm saved, and then live the way that we always had lived. Yet, or rather, when we confess our faith and are born again, we're called to radically follow Jesus, whatever that means. And one of the very famous things that Bonhoeffer said that's been quoted a lot, and I've quoted in the past, is this. Only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. Now, I've thought about that a lot. I don't claim to completely understand it yet. But what I do understand of it is really profound. Only he who believes is obedient. In other words, if you're a believer, you're obedient to Jesus, and only he who is obedient believes. And so we're obedient to the teachings of Scripture by confessing our faith, and we are, as believers, obedient to the teachings of Scripture. This radical call to follow Jesus is what caused Bonhoeffer to take radical action against evil. By the way, Bonhoeffer wasn't some um, uh, isolationistic, uh, freaked out, weird, monastic follower of Jesus. Bonhoeffer, and this is part of what makes him very interesting, was a well-rounded person. He came from a great family. He had a group of very close friends. He was highly educated, culturally sophisticated. He loved nice things, including art and music and a, and a good cigar. Bonhoeffer was a, he was a, he was a normal human being who, 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 who enjoyed his life. But he decided he would risk his life because he believed Jesus was calling him to radical action against evil. And so uh, one other thing before I move uh, in, into the real teaching today, which is to say that Eric Metaxas wrote a New York Times best-selling biography of Bonhoeffer that I highly recommend to you. And in it, you get a sense of, of the theology of Bonhoeffer and how it caused him to live this, what Metaxas calls, calls full-throated, joyful following of Jesus. 
Metaxas writes, Bonhoeffer knew that he might be arrested and even killed, but he had come to terms with that reality. He had theologically redefined the Christian life as something active, not reactive. It had, had, it had everything to do with living one's whole life in obedience to God's call through action. It was God's call to be fully human, to live as human beings, obedient to the one who had made us, which was the fulfillment of our destiny. It was not a cramped, compromised, circumspect life, but a life lived in a kind of wild, joyful, full-throated freedom. That was what it was to obey God. I love it. Now, only eternity will reveal whether Bonhoeffer was right or wrong in his role in the Valkyrie plot. But without question, his idea that to be a Christian was about more than just saying, I believe, but actually following Jesus, whatever the cost, is in alignment with what Scripture teaches us about being a disciple of Jesus. So, if you'd like and if you want to follow along in your life notes, you might want to write this down. You can find them if you want to uh, uh, somewhere in a seat back pocket close to you or on the TLCC app. Christianity is about more than saying, I believe in Jesus. It is about following Jesus and doing what he says as he helps you do it. Last week I offered my definition of discipleship. I said that a disciple of Jesus is a person who says yes to his call, is in growing relationship with him, and who by God's grace does his will. The theme verse for this series we launched last week is Mark chapter 3, verse 7, which tells us that Jesus withdrew to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. I see this as a beautiful paradigm for discipleship. Jesus called to them those he wanted. That's what I taught about last week. This week I'm going to talk about what it means then that those he wanted and were called came to him. I want to talk a little bit today about what it looks like when we come to him. And then next week we're going to talk about how that the disciples were with him. And then the following week, by God's grace, we're going to talk about how he sent them out. So let me spend the rest of my time today exploring a little bit again of what it looks like to come to him or to believe in him and follow him. And I'm going to kind of offer three thoughts that have something to do with each other and then in some ways don't have anything to do with each other. So don't try to make too many connections between my three disparate and somewhat disorganized thoughts today. Are you ready? Here's the first one. Three thoughts on what it means to come to him. The first is to believe in Jesus, is to follow Jesus and everything that entails. To believe in Jesus is to follow Jesus and everything that entails. It is often said, and this is influenced by Martin Luther and the great reformers, that the only thing we need to do to be in right relationship with God is to believe in Jesus. And I believe, if properly understood, that is absolutely true. I think the question, though, is what does it mean to believe in Jesus? We're all familiar with the verse, uh, uh, believers and, and folks maybe not yet believing, John chapter 3, verse 16. 
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We're familiar with that verse. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I actually prefer the uh, translation of Frederick Dale Bruner in his beautiful commentary on the Gospel of John where he translates this passage like this. God loved the world. He's trying to translate it literally according to, to the Greek uh, uh, text of, uh, of John. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that every single individual, whoever, who is simply entrusting oneself to him, would never be destroyed, oh no, but would even now have deep, lasting life. He in, interprets the word believe as entrust. And it actually captures better the sense of what it means to believe or to have faith in the New Testament. To believe in someone is more than just believing they exist. It's more than just mental assent. It also involves personal commitment. It's about trusting that they are who they say they are and that they will do what they say they will do to such an extent that you're willing to entrust yourself to them. Faith in the New Testament may be better interpreted than as trust, allegiance, faithfulness, loyal obedience. The word faith, the Greek word faith, as it's used in other first century texts, involves something reciprocal. It involves something relational. Um, faith is used in other first century texts as, uh, uh, as the relationship between a soldier and the soldier's commander, where the soldier puts his faith in the commander and therefore is faithful to the commander's commands. So if I have faith in someone, I'll entrust myself to them. I'll be faithful to them. I'll do what they ask me to do because I trust that what they're asking me to do is in my best interest. So if I say I believe in Jesus, it means I'm all in. It means I entrust my life to him. It means I do what he asked me to do. The reformers actually taught that if you didn't follow Jesus, that you hadn't believed in Jesus. That perhaps you said some words where you confessed your faith, but if you didn't actually follow Jesus, evidently you didn't truly believe. See, when we truly believe, the Holy Spirit comes, makes us alive to God and God's stuff, and motivates us at the level of spirit, or we might say heart, to actually follow Jesus. So we know we've been made alive to God if we have entrusted ourselves to him. The Apostle Paul captured this beautifully, for instance, in Colossians chapter 1, where he said, now he, he being God the Father, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. I think it would be a pretty rhetorical question for me to ask how many of you would like that to happen someday in the age to come. You would like God the Father to, pre to, to present you holy in his own sight without blemish and free from accusation. Well, how does that happen? Well, it says that happens if, big word, if, if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope held out 
in the gospel. See, saving faith is persevering faith. It is not, as the theologian Scott McKnight wrote in his beautiful commentary on Colossians, it is not a one-and-done thing. Paul is not a once-and-done theologian, McKnight says. He believes faith is a lifelong act of trust empowered by grace. So, a popular methodology in recent times has been um, the... Um, the use of what's commonly called the sinner's prayer. And this isn't actually something that comes directly from Scripture, but this is, as so much of what happens in church is, a methodology adapted uh, by people who are trying to figure out how to help people receive and live out the gospel. So, so, so there was developed this, this beautiful thing called the sinner's prayer. I Googled the sinner's prayer this week, or I had someone Google it, and it came back very simple. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner. I believe you died for my sins. Right now I turn from my sins and open the door of my heart and life. I confess you as my personal Lord and Savior. It's beautiful. And if someone prays that from their heart, God accepts us through our faith in him and causes us to be justified or made right with him. However, if someone just says those words and it's not something that's in one's heart, they've just said words. Coming to Jesus is not formulaic. In other words, it's not like say these five words, do these two things, go here, go there, and you're saved. It's something mysterious that happens in the heart that causes a person to entrust themselves to Jesus. And at some point, hopefully, we confess with our mouth this mysterious thing that's happening in a person's heart between them and God. I'm simply saying you have to do much more than say you believe. To really be a follower of Jesus, you know someone believed when they actually Follow Jesus. Romans chapter 10, verse 10. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. To be justified means to be counted by God as just. It means to be made right with God, to put simply, okay? So it's something happens in our heart that God can see, that God knows, where there's genuine faith. I entrust myself to you to the extent that I'm going to follow you. It's with the heart that we believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So quite frequently around here, well, I don't know how frequently, but every once in a while here at TLCC, I will lead the entire congregation, everyone who will say it with me, in a confession of faith. I guess it's my version of the sinner's prayer. And it's, it's, it's something similar to that. It's where I encourage people who've never confessed their faith to confess their faith. And I encourage all of us who have confessed our faith to confess our faith again. Because as you'll see in a few moments, I believe that we, we, we've never, we never finish confessing our faith. We continue in our faith. We're continually in our heart believing and with our mouth confessing. And what, I, what I'm trying to do when I do that every once in a while is I'm trying trying to get people to say with their mouth what's happening in their heart. But what I know is, 
Right now at the Life Christian Church, I know this, guys, I've been doing this a long time. I've been leading this beautiful congregation for 30 years. And so I've heard lots of stories from lots of people. I know right now at the Life Christian Church, there are a lot of people coming to faith. And it's something, it's happening in your heart. And you don't even completely understand it. Just all of a sudden, you are aware that you believe. And you may even be shocked that you do. It's like, what? I, I didn't even want to go to church. My wife talked me into going to that stupid thing. And I listened to then all of a, I wanted to go back. I don't even know why I wanted to go back. I'd listen to the preacher. I didn't even like the preacher. But all of a sudden, before long, you'd, something's happening, and it's in your heart. And it's with your heart that you are justified. And then at some point, see, I'll try to get you to say out loud what's in your heart so that your mouth is saying what's going on inside, and you're making this connection to God. Now, there's a lot of things that could be said about that, but one of those things I want to say is it's not formulaic. It's not, I want you to understand, it's not like I say these five words and that's it, see you later, I'm gonna get back to life as I previously knew it. No, when you really believe in your heart and when you confess with your mouth, it's not just a matter of one and done, it's a matter of now I am on a journey and we can call that journey the journey of discipleship, the adventure of a lifetime and I am now coming to Jesus and I'm gonna be with him, and I'm gonna do what he says to do. I am all in. So there are many of you who are coming. You don't even completely understand what's going on inside of you. But what's going on inside of you is God is in the process of causing you to come alive to him. He saw you, he wanted you, and here you come. Nothing in the world makes me happier. At some point, you need to confess that with your mouth. You just need to say it. I believe. I believe in Jesus. It doesn't mean I believe Jesus exists. It means I believe he is who he says he is. He does what he says he does, and I'm in. I'm, I'm with you, Jesus. All right. Here's the second thing I want to talk about for a few minutes, for, for most of the rest of my time. It's that... We must, I'm talking here about the Life Christian Church, continue to create an environment where people can come to him. Where people can come to him. In the Gospel of Matthew, I'll be using examples from some of the disciples as we talk about discipleship, some of the original 12 representative of all of us in so many ways. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew himself tells the story of how he was called by Jesus and began to follow Jesus. And in this story, we learn a lot about Matthew, but even more about Jesus, the heart of Jesus, which would be then the heart of God. Here's the story. Here's what's important to remember as you hear this story. Matthew is writing this story about how he came to Jesus, okay? Jesus saw a man named Matthew, Matthew writes, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While, how, did you know, how do you know whether or not Matthew was a disciple? Because he followed, he followed Jesus. He didn't just say, hey, Jesus, I believe in you. <laughs> he got up and he followed him, point made, I think. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Now Matthew goes and throws a party. 
Jesus hung out at a lot of dinner parties. By the way, subject for another time, but here's an example. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, I guess that was a whole group of people that clearly they weren't religious people, they were, they were notoriously sinful, uh, came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the religious people, saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Now, there's so much going on here. One of them is Matthew's a tax collector. You may say, why is that such a big deal? Well, uh, the tax collectors in the first century, and most of you know this, they, 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 were, um, they should be equated, they, they weren't like an IRS agent which some of you might be shuddering when I say IRS agent. They weren't like an IRS agent. They were like the mafia. They were extorting. They were bribing. They may have been breaking some legs. Uh, uh, Matthew probably reported directly to Herod Anipus, who was raising money from the Roman Empire. There was a lot of scheming, a lot of stuff going on. And so you always see tax collectors in the Gospels massed together with other notorious sinners. So here Matthew is, is a tax collector. And one thing that happens in the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew seems to never be able to get over this idea that Jesus called him. He looked at him and said, I want you. Even when Matthew lists the 12 disciples later and he refers to himself, he refers to himself as Matthew the tax collector. It's like he is mind boggled that Jesus would call him. But you know what? Jesus calls sinners like us. See? And this is part of what we learn in Matthew. But then the other thing that's really cool is that Matthew then throws a dinner party. And who does he invite? He invites his friends. And who are his friends? Sinners. I know that's not a pleasant word today. Forgive me. Uh, I'm just using the, the word coming from Scripture. He invites sinners. Everybody, you know, it's not like it's secretive who's a sinner. It's like they all know that all these people are sinners and who do they invite to the party? The guest of honor, of course, is Jesus. And the religious people show up and they say, Jesus, what are you doing hanging out with people like this? To which Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, uh, I, 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 I want to save people by my own merciful action, not by their religious effort. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. A couple of things about that. The first is, the minute that we begin to see ourselves, we have to ask, where do we see ourselves in this story? Do we see ourselves as the religious person? Do we see ourselves as the sinner? Do we see ourselves as Matthew, the disciple, who cares about all of these sinners? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't claim. Never think when I teach that I have it all figured out, okay? Sometimes I'm up here working it out in my mind while I'm talking to you. But the min, here's, what, here's, here's a very important point. The minute we begin to see ourselves as the healthy and the righteous, we are missing out on what Jesus wants to do. In other words, we must continue, regardless where we are in our journey of faith, to acknowledge our need of Jesus. When we see ourselves as having arrived, Jesus seems to become disinterested. 
Either we need him or we don't. And Jesus made it very clear. I didn't come for the people who say, I've arrived. I'm the mature Christian that everybody's lucky to have around. Look at how holy I am. If we adopt that kind of attitude, it's like Jesus says, okay, I guess you don't need me. Where is somebody who's unhealthy and somebody who doesn't see themselves as righteous? Now, I need to be careful about this, and this is going to be a nuanced discussion for a moment. On one hand, when we truly believe in Jesus, we are counted to have been justified. In other words, we're made right with God, and part of what happens there is God, because of Jesus, counts us as righteous. We are declared righteous. And so we have the right to stand and sing a song like we did last week, and I love it. I love praise and worship music, and I love a song we sang last week. I am who I say I am. We need to remind ourselves that God looks at us, and because of Jesus, he counts us as righteous. But on the other hand, you know, there's justification, and then there's what's called sanctification. Sanctification is where you actually live out in the reality of your life who God says you are. And so on one hand, we're declared righteous, but on the other hand, who among us is righteous? Don't raise your hand. I'm not talking about your position being declared righteous. I'm talking about your condition. Who here never struggles with their thought life? Who here never feels a twinge of jealousy? Who here never shades the truth just a little bit to get your own way, even though you, you declare that you would never lie and shouldn't ever lie and need to grow to where? Who here never is tempted? Who here, who here in your condition can say you're righteous? And so somehow a Christian has to on one hand say, I know that I'm declared righteous, but I know that actually living righteously is a journey that I'm on, and I need God's help, I need God's mercy, I need God's grace, or I'm in trouble. Somehow or another, we have to both understand our position and be poor in spirit at the same time where we are people always acknowledging our need of Jesus. And you know, sometimes, you know, it's, it's, you, I, I, I'm around folks and it's like they are the arrived. And what I would say is if you are the arrived, Jesus is not impressed. Because what Jesus wants us to do is say, I, I know I am who you say I am, but am I ever having trouble living this out in the reality of my life? I need you so much, Jesus. In a practical sense, we haven't become Christians, we're becoming Christians. You know what it means to be a Christian? It means to be Christ-like. Is is Jesus in the house? Well, people who are trying to become like Jesus are in the house, but I doubt anybody here can say, (laughs) ta-da. So, there's, there, there's a story I'll refer to a couple times in John chapter 11. It's a story where uh, Jesus and his disciples find out Lazarus is dead. And then Jesus says to his disciples, who already believe in him, 
He said, I'm glad Lazarus died because I'm now going to get to go and raise Lazarus from the dead, and I'm going to do this so that you may believe. These were believers who Jesus now is going to do something else so that they may believe. And as I'll say here in a few minutes, this is part of the adventure of discipleship, is Jesus keeps showing up to believers and doing things that help us continue to believe. Because faith is not a one and done. Faith is and if you continue in your faith. So we're believing, but we say, help my unbelief. This is the reality most of us experience that very few people want to admit. So Jesus says, I know you believe, but I'm gonna do things to help you believe. Uh, uh, Bruner in his commentary on John said, faith can neither be stationary nor complete. Faith always becomes. And then he quotes Martin Luther, who said, He who is a Christian is no Christian. Bruner says that is to say every Christian is always becoming a Christian, believing again and again. Can you understand? Now, again, there's nuance here. Am I going to say that I'm a Christian? Of course I am. But on the other hand, am I going to say that I'm Christ-like? I can say I'm becoming more Christ-like. I'm going to say I'm a believer, but at the same time I'm going to say I come up against a lot of things in my life where I need to believe again. It's a journey. It's an adventure. It's an awesome thing. So we are all on a journey to lived righteousness and experienced health. So on one hand, we're the righteousness of God in Christ. On the other hand, we need Jesus to help us become who he says we are. On one hand, we're healthy because God has come into our lives and he's helping us become more than we ever could have become before. But on the other hand, we, most of us, if we're honest, have some area of unhealth in our life. And we need mercy. We need mercy. We, and thank God Jesus cares deeply about people who are coming to faith. I think that's how we should think about it. We came to faith, we're coming to faith. And he has a special heart for people who haven't yet come to faith. He has a special heart for the sinners, the tax collectors, etc. I'm reminded when I read this passage from Matthew that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, which means that he came to bring people who are lost from God back to God and back into relationship with him and back into his purposes for them. He came for people who haven't believed yet. So when religious people, those who see themselves as having arrived, as healthy and righteous, when those people say to Jesus, why are you going out of your way to be with these sinners? Jesus says, don't you get it? I didn't come for you, I came for them. Which is why we always want to be in the position of needing him. But rereading this story this week reminded me how essential it is for us to stay true to our mission here at the Life Christian Church, to create an environment where those who need Jesus can come to faith and continue to come to faith. All of us who are on this journey. But, um, but especially, I, I think that all of us as disciples of Jesus should throw parties for the sinner and tax collector. And we should all have an attitude that cares as much about them as Jesus does. Um, 
This has been the heart of this church for many years. Sometimes we've said it more explicitly than others, and every once in a while I come back to this. Um, I, this past week I was looking through some old notes of mine, and I came across our first mission statement here at TLCC, and it's very explicit about this. It says, our mission is to be a church for the unchurched and spiritual seekers to explore the claims of Jesus Christ and find life's meaning through relationship with God and others. And then it says some other things about helping believers continue to grow and so on. But really, at its heart, that's why Sharon and I came to New Jersey 30 years ago. You guys know that, that, uh, that uh, most of you know that we were raised in the Bible Belt Midwest. Uh, I had been blessed with, with, a, with, a, with, a, with a, a very prosperous uh, career as a as a speaker and traveling all over the country and different places of the world speaking, doing crusades and so on and so forth. And I had the opportunity as a young guy to stay in the Middle West Bible Belt world where there's a church on every corner and assume the pulpit of a church that was already established and where, uh, you know, I could have a nice life and a good salary and all of those things and, and uh, uh, you know, a platform to do other things. Nonetheless, bottom line, we, did, we felt called not to do that. And we felt called to come to a place where, especially at that time, 30 years ago, there is not a Bible-believing church on every corner. The reality is there's a lot more of this now. There's been some level of revival, actually, in the New York City metropolitan area over the last 25 or 30 years. But 30 years ago, there were not very many prominent, large, thriving, growing, Bible-believing, Christ-centered, gospel-preaching churches. That's why I wanted to be here. And I was very motivated by what Paul wrote in Romans 15, 20 when he said, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. The reality is, I didn't, feel, I didn't want to go to Nashville where there are all these large churches and people get, most people in Nashville at least 30 years ago get up in the morning saying, where am I going to church? I wanted to go someplace where people were getting up, I know it sounds crazy, and the last thing on their mind was going to church. And the question for us was, how do we build a church that people who don't want to go to church are gonna to want to go to? One of the dangers as a church becomes larger is you forget what it was that caused you to build the church that now all kinds of people like, and if you're not careful, you begin to cater to the righteous and healthy and program for that and miss the reason God called you to show up in a place like this in the first place. And for those of you who don't know it, when we first came here, we, I was elected pastor of a, of a church by 54 people. We were meeting down in the basement of, of, a, of a, frankly, well, a church that we rented, God bless those folks, but the basement where we met was a terribly smelly, unpleasant place. And, and the question is, it was always, it wasn't, how do we get people from other churches to like us and come here? For one thing, there weren't, that, there weren't a lot of other churches to get people to come from. It was day after day after day after day asking the question, how do we create a place where people who don't believe will come to faith. I uh, came across a sermon this past week from 1997. 
And just, you know, just reminding of how long we've been talking about this. Here's a paragraph from that sermon. This is what I said. This would have been a group, there are a number of you would have been here in those days, all the way back at 106, as we used to call it. You must understand that our church exists to fulfill the mission of Christ, to reach lost people. We want to reach the person who does not get up on Sunday morning with a desire to go to church. We want to build a bridge to people who don't even know if they believe in God and those who've been turned off by the traditional church. We are not interested in convincing the convinced. We would rather accept the challenge of turning atheists into missionaries. We are ambitious, tremendously ambitious, yes, even driven to preach the good news about Jesus to those who do not know him. So I've been motivated over the years by passages of scripture like this. 1 Corinthians 9, 22 through 23, where Paul said, I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. What is it like to have that kind of mentality as a pastor in a church and as the people of a church where you say, I'm going to become all things to all people. What can I do to connect to the person who may not think church but who needs the gospel Someone that God is calling, someone God wants, someone who hasn't yet come to faith. How do we create an environment here where we're willing to become anything in order to connect with someone somewhere? I mean, you know, have Michael Jr. do comedy? Have, I mean, over the years we've done all kind of things. Why have we done that? So we can have a nice time? Not primarily. We've done that because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Here's another passage that really informs how we think here. Colossians chapter four, verse two, Paul said, pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. And then he says, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. This is really informed how we think here. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. We believe that we have a responsibility to particularly care for the, quote, outsider, end quote, when we are graced with their presence. And frankly, every Sunday morning, we'll have many, many, many people for a variety of reasons, from a variety of places, both believers, but people who yet don't believe. Listen, if you're someone here, I know I'm talking inside baseball here for a moment, but you don't know whether you believe yet, you have to know that your presence is the presence that excites me the most. And I feel I have a special obligation to care about the outsider. Why? That's who Jesus came for. 1 Corinthians 14, 16, here's another. The only time in the New Testament where there's actually a, a lengthy teaching about how to conduct a church service. It's a teaching that has to be coupled with 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 13, which is this message of how we need to selflessly love each other, and then 1 Corinthians 14, which is a caution to spiritually gifted people not a condemnation of spiritually gifted people, a celebration of spiritually gifted people, but a caution that they exercise spiritual gifts in a public setting where unbelievers are present in a way that helps the unbeliever be able to say amen. Sometimes we need to do things on a Sunday morning that an outsider, an unbeliever, can say amen to. And let's face it, a lot of folks show up, they've never heard praise and worship music. 
They've never heard a preacher preach, certainly not this long ever in their lives. And so the question is, how do we make sure there's something we're doing they can say amen to? Because ultimately, what I want them to say yes to is Jesus and the gospel. How do we help? Okay, here's the passage, 1 Corinthians 14, 16, 20. When you are praising God in the Spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you are saying. You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In other words, he's saying, I'm expecting those of you, especially who are spiritually gifted, to be the adults in the room. And what adults do is adults think about someone other than themselves. Parents don't get up every day saying, how do I make myself happy today? Parents get up every day saying, how am I going to raise these kids and help these kids grow into what God called them to be. And Paul says, I want those of you who are most spiritually gifted to be the ones who are thinking as adults, bigger than yourselves. Now, what he's talking about here, I don't have time to get into the full exegesis, is he's actually talking here about the exercise of the spiritual gift of of tongues. And he's cautioning how that's used in a public meeting where there are inquirers present. And he says, I would rather speak five words they can understand than, how many thousands? Than 10,000 words that they can understand. And he's saying, hey, I'm all for this. I feel this. I want this. I desire this. However, I am thinking about more than just how this impacts me. And there's a principle here that we must extract. And the principle is this. The principle is that God is always interested in speaking in a language the inquirer can understand. And as a church, we have to be careful to speak in a, in a way that someone who doesn't get church and scripture and all of that that helps create an environment where they can come to faith and so you know there are many ways we've practiced this over the day over the years why did we put a coffee bar in 25 years ago we put a coffee bar in not so believers could hang around and have a good time though i want you desperately to do that please 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 do but that really wasn't why we spent the money years ago when churches didn't have coffee bars we were thinking how do we how when an outsider comes comes in how can we help them connect to who we are hey starbucks is popular Let's let them smell coffee. Let's have a cup. And that's why we have a coffee bar at the Life Christian Church, which is getting ready to get relaunched in a really powerful way. Uh, This is our our usage of things like art in its variety of ways. All art, whether it was art that was done by a Christian or art that was done by somebody that isn't a Christian, the fact is all beauty is, 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 is beauty. And there's a common grace. God gives people the ability uh, created in his image to create beauty beautiful things. And so we'll use art in its various forms to try to create something that's attractional. It draws people to the transcendent. This informs my teaching style. I'm not doing a very good job of this today because one of the things you're not supposed to do if you're trying to, you know, connect to the outsiders, preach too long. And am I ever blowing that one? Uh, forgive me. Uh, I need a lot of forgiveness around that. But, but typically when I get up and I start a sermon, guys, I'll start a sermon not by walking up and saying, really what I'd prefer to do is just show up here with a big Bible, open it. 
I'm a Bible teacher. I'm a student of Scripture. Right? I don't know. You'd be hard-pressed to find a pastor who works any harder than I do at being able to understand Scripture, teach Scripture, and so on and so forth. But I don't walk up and say, okay, days, let's, let's open to Isaiah 6.1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Let's start there. You know, you have to understand that somebody that's not familiar with the Scripture, their eyes cross at Uzziah, their, their arms cross at, uh, I don't even remember the next. His train filled the temple. What is that, like a choo-choo train? What, 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 what's going on here? Now, here's the deal. I want to teach Isaiah 9-6, but I might start out by talking about a movie or talking about the Yankees, although I'm very disappointed right now in the way they continue to blow these games. What is wrong with our knowledge, Chapman? I might talk about my dog. I might talk, you, I, I might talk about the Valkyrie plot. I might, because I, I, I want to make a connection. I want to, I'm thinking about more than just what I like. I'm trying to think, and most of the time, the hardest thing in the sermon for me is to come up with that. Because the thing I'm inspired by is Scripture. But I want to help the person who doesn't know Scripture travel along with me. This is true of our choices in music. You know, to me, the most beautiful music in the world is praise and worship music. I love praise and worship music. But I also understand there are a lot of people. You know, when Matthew invited the, 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 the tax collectors and sinners, they probably never heard, you know, a, a, a praise and worship song. You, that was a dumb statement, I understand. But you, 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 a lot of times we expect people to come from zero to 100 in like five minutes. You know, that we bring them in, in the foyer of our house, and before you know it, they're. I better not say that. Those of us who've had a relationship with Jesus for a long time, there's a level of intimacy that we feel with Jesus. And when we start singing songs of Jesus, something in us connects, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful, and it's fantastic. I'm, but sometimes we need to look around and ask the question, you know, do, how do we connect to the person who may not yet be there? They may not yet feel that. This is all new to them. They hear the words of the song, and it doesn't make any sense to them. Well, I want to get them to the place where they want to come to a believer's meeting and do 45 minutes of praise and worship. Frankly, that's what I hope for, because it's wonderful. It's awesome. It's full of God's presence. And, and, and but, but I know that that's not necessarily where we can start with someone who's in the process of coming to faith. Sometimes we find things that are true and good and beautiful that may not be classically Christian to connect with someone, but it says something that, you know, like the song that set up today's message. Dave Matthews, I heard that jogging. Don't condemn me for listening to Dave Matthews. He's pretty good. Uh, but, but, you know, ha, 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 so, there's something there that perhaps might connect with someone who may not connect with our Christianese. I, I, we're, I would simply say this, we're always in conversations about this. We're always asking the question, how do we help the person who needs to come to faith come to faith? And I'm not saying we figured it out. I think sometimes those things change every few years. I just believe this with all my heart. As followers of Jesus, we need to have a heart that says, how do we create a climate where the inquirer can say amen? All right, and here's the final thing. Oh, the Spirit of Jesus, if you want to write this down, will always lead us to connect to the person who really needs him. So if we're following the Spirit, we're always going to be thinking about the person who needs him. See, I think Jesus cares so much 
for the person who doesn't see themselves as healthy and righteous, that if we're going to be in alignment with him, our hearts are going to deeply care about that. Now, to make you feel better, I'm going to ask you to stand for my last point. It's just going to be a minute. And then I'm going to say the benediction, and then I'm going to invite you, if you want to, to hang out for a praise and worship song that the band's going to do, a beautiful song to do that, or to feel free to be dismissed if you like. But uh, I've been really long today, and I don't want to keep you too much longer. Here's the third thing. It's that we must believe and keep believing. We must believe and keep believing. So let me bring it back to this. None of us have arrived. Jesus has called us and we're coming. We're all on a journey. We've believed and now as we try to follow, we must keep believing. I see a beautiful example of this in the person that's commonly called, the disciple is commonly called Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. There's this passage in John chapter 10, John chapter 11 I referred to a minute ago where Jesus said to this, said to this they get word that Lazarus has died. And Jesus says to his disciples, let's go up to Judea again. The disciples say, Rabbi, the Judeans were just now trying to stone you to death. And you want to go back there again? And Jesus talks to him for a minute. And then he says, Lazarus died, but I'm actually glad he died for your sakes so that you will believe. Then Thomas, who we call, call Doubting Thomas, who was nicknamed Twin, or in the NIV it'll say Didymus, which means twin, said to his fellow disciples, come on, let's go to so that we can die with him. Here here Thomas is standing there. We can now call him believing Thomas. He's standing there saying, Jesus, if you're going to go risk your life for this, I'm in. We'll go die with you. Okay, believing Thomas. But not too long after that, Jesus dies, he is raised from the dead, he shows up to a group of disciples, he shows himself to his disciples, it was a called meeting, but Thomas wasn't there, and he missed it, all right? And then we're told in John 20, 24, Thomas, one of the 12, nicknamed twin, wasn't with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I can see the nail prints in his hands, put out my finger and touch those nail prints and reach out my hand and touch his side, I am sorry. I can never believe. Believing Thomas is now doubting Thomas. Eight days, exactly a week later, when his disciples were gathered together in the room once again, Thomas was with them this time. He said, I'm not missing church this week. Jesus comes to them while the doors were locked, and he stood right there in the middle of them and said, Shalom. Then he says immediately, first thing, to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands and put out your hand to touch my side and stop being an unbeliever. Be a believer. Thomas responded and said to him, my Lord and my God. One commentator said Thomas's nickname, the twin, was seen by several interpreters as an allusion to the fact that Thomas carried in himself two men, a believer and an unbeliever, a Jacob and an Esau. But then this commentator says, in this sense, however, are not all believers twins. We are all coming to Jesus. And as we come to Jesus, we'll all have seasons where we believe and we'll have seasons where if we're honest with ourselves, we doubt because we're all twins. But Jesus 
constantly will show up in our lives and not say, you terribly bad person, you not, your faith isn't perfect and I'm mad at you. No, Jesus shows up like he did to Thomas and in everybody in the room, he looked for the person who was struggling with his faith and he said, Thomas, let me show myself to you in such a way that you can move from being an unbeliever to a believer. Was he a believer, Thomas? Yes. Was he an unbeliever, Thomas? Yes. Was he a disciple? Yes. He just kept showing up and working through his faith. And Jesus kept showing up and saying, Thomas, I'm going to do everything that I can do to help you continue to believe. And the reason I forced that in at the very end of a long message is I was very impressed this week that there would be people in this room and there would be people watching online. You wonder if you can be honest about your doubt. You're wondering if you can be honest about the fact that you believe, but sometimes you don't know if you believe. You, 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 you wonder sometimes if discipleship is this perfect following of Jesus and the fact is guys we're all twins and we all go through these cycles of life where we need Jesus to help us and until we can come to the place where we can say you are my Lord and my God hey just keep coming just keep coming just keep coming just keep watching just keep coming and hopefully this will be a safe place for you to work through your doubts and keep coming to faith